Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're connecting with us today. I am honored. Uh, we have Dr. Stephen Patterson on our podcast today. And, uh, uh, Steve, I was, I just, uh, I read your book, the forgotten creed mm -hmm. hadn't read anything else that you've done, which I've now like got a read list of yours now <laughs> that I want to get to, but, um, I loved it so much. I thought, gosh, I'm going to try to see if I can find his email address, <laughs> see if I can do an interview with him. And I was shocked that you got back to me and said, you'd do it. So thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. I'm glad to, uh, I'm, you know, glad to be part of your, your program. So Steve is a professor at Willamette, Willamette university, which is in Oregon, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which city is it in? Yeah. It's in Salem, Oregon, in the capital. Salem. We call it, we call it Willamette. Uh, and, um, uh, it, this, and it rhymes with damn it. So we say, <laughs> damn it. Yeah. But I'm going to I love to start with a little bit of your sort of origin story so our audience can get to know you. But you are a, a well-known uh, origins of Christianity professor, um, have been a, associated with the Jesus Seminar, but have done tons of work on the origins of Christianity. So you've hung out with people like John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg and all kinds of folks. Um, and uh I love this book. Like if I could have my evangelical friends read uh, the forgotten creed, I would buy them a copy and send it to them. If they'd read it. <laughs> well, you're welcome to do that. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us about yourself. Where were you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And then, you know, give us a little bit of your educational and family history. Just, just on the front end of this interview. Well, I was I was born in Texas, uh, at uh, in uh, near uh, in Dallas Fort Worth. Fort Worth was my uh, first home, and my father was a, a minister, a Disciples of Christ minister, as I said a moment ago to you. And I went to TCU. My both my mom and dad went to TCU, but they were involved in the civil rights, and so um, by 1958, they were out, they were they were literally run out of Texas. And uh, so landed in, in Illinois. And then we moved around the Midwest quite a lot. My father had a little, you know, trouble settling. Of course, he was a young person in turbulent times and um, finally found a home in, in uh, South Dakota, where I did some of my growing up. Uh, there was so we think of South Dakota as a really conservative place now, but then it was kind of a three, free thinking place and everybody had a, a place there. Uh, so. Um, that's that, that was my growing up as a as a preacher's kid in various small towns in the Midwest. Um, so I guess my 
my that part of my life was uh, fast living and you know trying to prove myself that prove to people that I wasn't uh, uh, as straight laced as my father. <laughs> but I went to college and had a kind of a normal college uh, experience, a little little college in South Dakota called Yankton College that is now a federal prison. Uh, oh. I like to throw that in unless you think I have great academic credentials. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it was a great place to, to, to grow up and, and, and meet people from all over the, all, all over the country. And, and, uh, was it a state education. school or a private Pardon? school? Was it state it, school or private? It was school? a private school, a little, a little, um, congregational college, uh, kind of like those other con- congregational schools out there, like, uh, Doan and Carlton and, and Grinnell, um, and, uh, very, you know, sort of progressive kind of place. Hmm. And I um, then I went to Harvard Divinity. I met my wife there, and and uh, we've been married for uh, what forty five years now. Uh, wow! And congratulations. Uh, uh, then we went off to graduate school together. Uh, went to Harvard for my uh, theological degree. What year were you at Harvard? I was there from nineteen eighty one to eighty three. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, then went to Claremont to do a PhD and. Um, did a lot of did my PhD on the Gospel of Thomas, and I've been working on that over the years, um, pretty steadily. So uh, that's one area that I've kind of developed some extra expertise in. Um, but then um, my I landed a job at Eden Seminary, which was a big stroke of big stroke of luck. Um, you know, Eden Seminary in St. Louis, and uh, I taught there for uh, more than twenty years. And during that time, I, I I got connected with the Jesus Seminar. Um, Bob Funk had reached out to me because of my expertise on the Gospel of Thomas, and and Crossan was interested in Thomas at the time too. And so uh, I started with the Jesus Seminar in 1988, which was pretty close to the beginning, and went did more or less the whole run with with the Jesus Seminar. And that experience kind of transformed me. I, I've never had a kind of awakening experience or a, or a, any kind of crisis experience in my life related to faith, but but the Jesus seminar was a real awakening to me because um, it helped me connect the historical work that I was interested in doing with uh, issues in our culture, and I discovered that you know you can you can be a um, uh, engaged historian, and uh, it, you know. It, I would say you make a real difference, but you don't really make a difference as an academic. You, you just don't. Uh, it's just too small of a of a of a um, of a swing. But um, you can feel you can feel like you're you're participating in the larger discourses going on in our country, and that's that, so. I I learned to connect what I was learning from uh, about Jesus, um, which I was I, which was a. I was learning a lot, um, and uh, with what's going on in our in our civilization, and um, I've been doing that sort of thing more or less since uh, this book that you're uh, interested in, the Forgotten Creed, is not about Jesus. It's about um, a response to Jesus and a re- early response to Jesus that we encounter in one of in one of Paul's letters. Uh, but it is a I think a genuine response to Jesus and one that picks up a, a strain of the Jesus tradition that's very important and often neglected, usually neglected in our circles. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so you, you met your wife in South Dakota. Do you guys have kids, grandkids? We have two children. Yeah, we have two children. They're, they're grown now. One of them lives with us. Uh, uh, she has special needs and uh, will always live with us. And so we're, we're very fortunate that our daughter will never go off and uh, leave us alone with an empty nest. We're very happy about that. And our son uh, has a degree from Willamette University, where I teach now, and lives in Portland and is, is having a great life up there. So that's yeah. awesome. And your wife, I is, is a senator. Is she currently? Yes, uh, she's a she's a an Oregon senator. Yeah, yeah. Deborah Patterson, and is she also a pastor as well? Is she? Pastor? Yeah, she has a she she's a, a UCC a United Church of Christ uh, minister, okay. and has. Um, uh, you know, a, a demon, an MDiv, and a demon, and served churches. And most of her life, though, was spent in, in health administration. She uh, administered a big hospital in St. Louis that was connected to the United Church of Christ, uh, called Deaconess Hospital, and then helped to found the G, the Deaconess uh, Foundation, which did health uh, health advocacy, especially for children in in, the, in St. Louis in the urban core. So most of her life is doing that. She kind of semi-retired out here, and she passed a small country church, which we loved for um, several years. But then in in, in 2016, she she heard the call to enter politics. <laughs> and so uh, we've been on that ride ever since. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's let's jump into this book. But before we before we get to the Forgotten Creed, um, you you've done a lot of work with uh, the Gospel of Thomas and some of the other. I don't know what the right words for those are, yeah. but um, I remember you know I've I've read El- Elaine Pagels and some of her work but had really hadn't dove into those um, like you have. (laughs) And I was, it was just fascinating to me as I was reading the forgotten creed and how, how you integrated into, you know, some of the history and context you, you relied on some of those, like the gospel of Thomas and some of the stories in, in the, was it the gospel of Mary and uh, you know, just several of those, what, why, why would, like, if you just think about people listening here who read the Bible and, you know, probably don't go much beyond that. Why, why is it for the lay, put it in layman terms. Why is it important to read some of those um, other gospels? And what, have, what have you, I, I, I can gather just by reading this book, some of the things you've gleaned from that and how it has affected, you know, your understanding of the, the, uh, the new Testament. Mm-hmm. But for lay people, what, why, why should they probe into some of these texts? Well, um, you know, Jesus was a very dynamic figure, and people uh, who experienced him firsthand uh, had a lot of big reactions, and um, those reactions, uh, those interpretations of Jesus, drew from all kinds of cultural traditions um, in the ancient world, and. You know, what we have in the New Testament is uh, a a slice of that, a a relatively small slice. But in in the New Testament itself, you have a lot of diverse reactions to Jesus uh, coming to to, to voice. Absolutely. A lot of diversity there, too. But the diversity of early Christianity is even greater than that. Um, And so as an historian, 
um, I really need to, to, I feel I need to have a handle on all those different uh, responses to Jesus. One thing, I'm interested in Jesus as an historical figure. And I don't think you can get a, a good handle on Jesus just by reading uh, one slice of the of the interpretation of Jesus that which we have in the in the New Testament. Uh, so I think, as an historian interested in Jesus, I have to read a lot of different things, a lot of different reactions to Jesus to get a little better idea of where the vectors meet mm-hmm. uh, in a in a in a historical figure. Yeah. Um, but then, I, you know, it's interesting also how people reacted to Jesus and um, what kinds of things they said in response to him. And um, what we have in the New Testament is pretty much a martyrdom kind of reaction to Jesus. He was a kind of hero who who died for something he believed in. And, and therefore, uh, you know, for, for early followers of Jesus, especially those living in the Roman Empire, the idea that you could you would you would trust your life to a cause like that and um that was a very meaningful thing for people to relate to uh especially because you know i don't want to overplay the idea that very christians were were persecuted but they were countercultural they were dissidents and so his life of uh the end of his life especially the 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 death of his death at the hands of the roman empire was a meaningful thing for them to try and relate to and get a grip on and so the death and resurrection of jesus was basically a martyrdom narrative that says you know give your life to this and god will will um will recognize you will reward you in the end and that's 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 perfectly fine and in ennobling um but I think in the, over the course of his, uh, Western civilization, that narrative has become kind of a problem. Um, people, instead of really giving themselves to a cause, they, they give themselves to Jesus and um, expect their sins to be forgiven for that. And that's the narrative. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of a martyrdom narrative, but it's using a martyrdom language in a way that is out of context. Um so uh, I'm interested in other other narratives, other ways of thinking about Jesus. In the Gospel of Thomas, you have a you have a, a tradition that thinks about him as a as a sage, as a as a wise person who can help you plumb the depths of human ex- existence and experience. And uh, it's a kind of Platonizing narrative. Ironically, if you look if you look at uh, the breadth of early Christian literature and ask, well, where do people start, first think start to think about souls? And the idea that you have a, a body and a soul and a soul that goes to heaven. Yeah. Well, you don't find that in the New Testament very much. Uh, you find it in the Gospel of Thomas for the first time in early Christian literature, a non-canonical or apocryphal or um, yeah. heretical uh, uh, book. Well, and it's not really in the Hebrew Bible. It's not in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And, um, and we read it into the New Testament, but very... It, it's it's hard to wedge it in there. It really is. <laughs> All right. So the let's talk about the forgotten creed. Like even when I was uh, my my evangelical pastor self preaching the Bible, uh, <laughs> I I would I always thought, gosh, what if this Galatians three twenty six through twenty eight was our central yeah. piece of Pauline teaching? Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't 
wouldn't wouldn't we be doing a lot better <laughs> in the world with issues of justice and all kinds of things, you know, if that were our center point versus, you know, some of the other center points. And so that's what really attracted me to uh, your book. And then I love the su subtitle Christianity's original struggle against bigotry, slavery and sexism. So you your first chapter, you talk about you kind of uh, dissect this uh, this creed as it appears in Paul. Uh -huh. Share with us, you know, briefly, like you came you came to the conclusion that. Some of it was what Paul put into a creed that was much, that was older than Paul. And yeah. you, came, you came to uh, uh, then you 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 ended up summarizing or not really summarizing. You ended up stating what you felt like was probably the original creed uh, and how that differed slightly from what we see in Paul in, in Galatians. So yeah. what got you in into this uh, in the first place? in terms of um, wanting to build a whole book around this. Mm. And then well, what, how did you a, dissect this little creed to come up with what you feel like was maybe the original? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll talk just a, just a moment about get, how I got into it. I assume that some of your listeners probably have a, a Bible handy and we'll pull it out and, and just look it up. We'll do a little exegesis here in a minute. Um, but this is a, of course, a well-known piece of tradition and, um, and I had taught it for many years, and it was a it was a stopping point and you know a checkpoint in my introduction to the New Testament for for seminarians. But um, and I would have them read a section of a book by Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza called "In Memory of Her," mm. which is a a good um, sort of treatment of the text. But it's you know ten pages or so, and 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 I was surprised to learn when I. Um, uh, you know, a few years I was looking around for something to to sink my teeth into and, and realized that there wasn't at that point um, a, a book on this creed. There were books on parts of the creed, ironically, uh, just parts of it, though, and not really looking at the, the creed as a whole. And so I thought, well, that's that's long overdue. And I've, I've wanted to, something to direct students to over the years and didn't have it. So th that's been a lot of my writing is uh, really creating things that I could use in class. So that's how I got in, in interested in it. You know, when I finished the book and and it came out, we were in the midst of a real cultural crisis with the beginning of the Trump years. And people assumed that I wrote the book for that, for that reason. But that wasn't it at all. It was just low-hanging fruit on, you know, on a topic that, that I thought needed to be written about a little bit more and more for a little bit more of a, a general audience than it typically typically is, but then it, it became very relevant um, to our to our you know our our cultural situation, our political crisis, uh, the the rise of of racism and, and sexism in ways that we just had thought were completely off the table. Um, suddenly, they were back, and and they were in power, and so. I felt we, this was now part of the conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The exegesis of it, if people have their text open now and, and look at it, um, you know, Paul does this quite a lot. Uh, he, he drops things into his letters, uh, little pieces of tradition. Uh, he, many people think he had a rhetorical school in Ephesus. 
where he and others sort of created these kinds of things and uh, crafted them, if you will, so that they could use them in their speeches and their preaching. Um, and this may have been something like that, but most people think it was a baptismal creed uh, used, um, created and used in a baptismal ceremony. And so for that reason, also a lot of scholars think that Paul didn't create this creed. Uh, he wasn't a baptizer. Uh, he reluctantly says he may have baptized a few people in Corinth, if you recall the opening lines of 1 Corinthians. Um, but uh, he uses it in Galatians because of the first um, of the three sort of dyadic statements here. There is no Jew or Greek. And there is no Jew or Greek is the theme of the, the epistle to the Galatians. And it is also the theme of Paul's ministry, his life, his uh, what he was doing with the Jesus tradition. He was trying to break down an ethnic boundary that, after you've read the Forgotten Creed, you'll know was a, quite a, a deadly one in Paul's own day and time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the fact that it has uh, not just Jew or Greek, it's got uh, slave or free and male and female in there also, shows us that the creed itself was about something, an issue that was broader, something more. Mm. And that issue is uh, it is about uh, how do we, as human beings, uh, divide ourselves up into uh, uh, teams, tribes, clans, uh, groups, uh, and uh, and face off. Um, mm. So anyway, that's the that's the relevance of it. Uh, my own work, uh, you know, I, people do reconstruct it differently and, and um, some will agree with me. Some don't. And my big move was to take 27 and set it aside. Uh, verse 27 for you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's Paul's comment on the creed. He's reminding them that it was a baptismal creed and that if they were baptized at some time, that they would have said this and so believed it. Uh, so it's kind of a way, a rhetorical way of saying, take this seriously. You you, you took it seriously once, take it seriously now, again. Uh, so I think 27 is Pauline commentary. And that leaves us with, uh, for you are all sons of God or children of God, I would say, through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the three, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female. And then repeating that first line again, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, the term Christ Jesus uh, from an exegesis and histor you know, from a historical point of view is, is suspect because it has a very Pauline ring to it. Uh, only Paul uses that particular phrase, uh, that, that title for Jesus. Everybody else says uh, Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. Only Paul says Christ Jesus. And so that sounds real Pauline. And, and so I think that um, he probably also added in Christ Jesus in the first line and in the last line. So mm -hmm. originally it said, for you are all children of God through faith. Uh, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female, for you are all one. Um, and then you, as I read that, you just probably heard me say, uh, for you are all sons of God through faith. And faith through faith is also a very Pauline mm -hmm. phrase and a Pauline theme. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I decided that that probably is also Pauline uh, addition, Pauline editorializing on the creed. Mm -hmm. And it probably just began for you are all children of God. And then you, you think in the spirit. Maybe in the spirit is part yeah. of it. Um, mm -hmm. 
I get I get pushback from scholars on that because uh, that's also kind of a Pauline thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I, I suggested it is because when Paul alludes to the creed in another letter in Romans, uh, he, he throws in uh, a reference to the spirit. And also um, the um, early Christian baptized baptism was often associated with a kind of ecstatic experience where the, the, the imparting of the spirit uh, is part of the deal. And so and, and I think that's that's a good reason to consider it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not it's not critical. I think what's critical is the idea of um, uh, this this central triadic statement. Uh, you are there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. Breaking down these 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 basic ways by which we uh, divide the human community into ethnic groups into class structure and finally into gender Mm -hmm. uh, identities. This is, um, this is something that this creed identified at the, right at the get go as something very problematic about the human, about our human habits, Mm -hmm. this tendency to to divide, Mm -hmm. uh, especially along these lines. And this is this is a problem that has haunted us and haunted every human community through all of time. I don't want mean to be too universalizing on this, but it's probably true. Yeah, that every civilization has struggled with this, and ours is struggling with it mightily right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tribalism and anybody outside our tribes, the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anybody that's different, Not like us. The, anybody is different. Yeah, they're the enemy. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, you point out that there is no Jew or Greek instead of no longer. There is no slave or free instead of no longer. And there's no, and then you point out male and then it switches instead of, or female, it says, and female, which you think is referenced back to Genesis one, just share about the no longer versus the no and the significance of that. And then the, the significance of male and female as well, but I want to hold off on a bigger discussion of the male and female. Cause I, yeah, later, yeah. but yeah, just a brief um, comment about no longer, and then the male and female versus the male or female. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that that close, careful reading of the of the book. Um, so, um, so Paul sets it up sets up this 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 insert um, in a conversation about it, which is kind of you know historical. He before you were that, now you're this. And so before the creed, he says, you, you know, you are no longer, you're no longer in a, under a, a garden, he says. Um, and so when he comes into the creed, translators tend to bring that no longer sort of historical narrative into the creed so that Paul would be saying there is no longer Jew or Greek, something like that. But if you look at the, the Greek it, it doesn't say that. It just doesn't. Um, uh, no longer is ukeni, and this is this is uh, ukeni, and this is a different. This this expression means there is not. There just isn't. It's a very emphatic. There is not statement. So, um, to me, that was significant because. Um, to say there's no longer Jew or Greek would, would mean to say that, you know, there was a time when that was a valid claim. 
and uh, and now things have changed. Um, and the creed is actually saying that never was a valid claim. Um, there is no slave or free. There's no, no longer slave nor free. Well, there's a t- maybe that suggests that there was a time when that was something we, you, you know, made sense to people. And this creed says, no, that's not, never was, never, no way, no how. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of important to, 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 to point that out to people, that this is a, a kind of on, almost ontological statement, really, uh, as opposed to a historical statement. Yeah. It's not that something happened to change this. It was that it, it is that it would never was. Mm-hmm. Class distinctions never did make any sense. Yeah. It's like an it's like a construct imposed upon humanity versus the ontological reality of humanity. Well put. Very well put. Very well put. And then the last um, the last statement, there is no male and female, switches things up just a little bit. And it switches from there is no slave or free, no male or, or Jew or Greek. And this last uh, the last clause goes, there is no male and female and female yeah and it's also it's not man and woman it's male and female and this language uh the this greek phrase um mimics very precisely the greek translation that most people would have used of the hebrew scriptures in antiquity and and uh hellenistic antiquity uh at genesis 127 where Septuagint the, stuff, right? That's how the Septuagint. That's right. That's right. The, the Septuagint would have said in in, in Genesis one twenty seven that um, God created human beings in uh, in the image of God, male and female. He created them, and um, so that's kind of important to point out because. Um, Early ancient Jews and some early Christians kind of focused in on Genesis uh, 127. And instead of reading um, in male and female, he created them. They could read in some texts, male and female, he created him. Did you hear the, did it sense the difference? Mm-hmm. In suggesting that the first created human being was neither male nor female, but an androgyne, uh, both male yeah. and female. Yeah. You've and read, um, you go into this a little more in depth in that chapter. Yeah, it sounds weird right? to people today, but, but <laughs> if, we, it, if we get to chapter six, I'm going to I wanted to drill in on this a little bit. This and and yeah, it's some yeah. fascinating stuff that you brought in on that in chapter six. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a real uh, going down a real rabbit hole today, but in each <laughs> one, it really wasn't. And um, and so the the idea in in reading Genesis that way was that uh, the the problem with human beings began when uh, God separated uh, female from male, Eve from Adam, and so gendered existence begins. Mm-hmm. And that's where the trouble starts. It, tro- it starts not with not with Eve being tempted, but with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve being tempted, 
And they associated, you know, this thus begins our whole struggle with the, you know, the evils of sex and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's how they read it. And so the idea was that if the, if the trouble began with the, with the splitting and gendering of, of humanity, then the solution would be to try to turn back the clock and um, become less gendered and reunite the genders in, oh, sometimes they would do it ritually, sometimes they would do it just uh, creedily, sometimes they would do it by, you know, men dressing like women or women dressing like men. I mean, it was different ways you could act, you could reenact this uh, recapitulation of the genders. Yeah, and and in, in your book, chapter six dives into some of that a little bit more. Um, good stuff. Um, so chapter two, uh, yeah. <laughs> the old cliche. I, this, yeah. I think these two, uh, first one from the, uh, from possibly Socrates yeah. and then the other one from the Jewish tradition. Yeah. yeah. Give us, because I think, I mean, certainly those are in the background of this creed. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Somebody yeah. had them in mind when they created the creed. Right. Uh, so um, there's, there's sure, a common sure the cliche. Audience, what those are, those two. Yeah. There's a, there's a common cliche in, in antiquity and it goes like this. I thank God I was not born uh, X, but Y, uh, you know, A, but B, C, but D. And you can plug in whatever your, your prejudices are. And, but the most, you know, you find this cliche in in Hellenistic writers um, and um, that is Greek writers who say something like, I'm glad that God created me. I thank the gods I was created, you know, a Greek, not a barbarian or a Roman, not a barbarian. Uh, and then male and female always gets in there, a man, not a woman. And slave and free always gets in there, too. So free and not a slave or uh, free and not a brute or free and not an animal or something like that. And um, so this cliche is definitely in the background of this creed. The creed was formed as a kind of counter, uh, a, a counter statement to that well-known cliche. When people introduce it in the, in the, the discourse, they often introduce it as a Jewish uh, cliche because mm -hmm. it is repeated in the Talmud. But, um, that's really to you know, shade the thing in the wrong way, I think. Um, we shouldn't think of Christianity as a rebellion against Judaism. We should think of it as a, a Jewish rebellion against certain cultural trends that are uh, our still cultural trends that we struggle with today. And so, um, yeah, the, the creed was really formulated to counter this very common cultural idea that men are are better than women, that that free people are better than slaves or have it better than slaves, and that um, that uh, we are better than whoever it is we hate out there. Romans hated Gauls, um, uh, Greeks hated the Barbaroi, uh, the Persians mostly, and uh, and Jews hated Gentiles. Uh, I mean, it's it's that's yeah. the same old story. It's the same old yeah. old, old story. And we. We live, uh, can, we can live in fear of the other. I thought your, your last couple of sentence in chapter two, but really it's all about the fear of difference and the power to assuage that fear through domination. Whoever, yeah. 
whoever yeah. composed this baptismal creed had the extraordinary wisdom to see through this pretense. There is another identity, another way to lay claim to human worth. We are all children of God. So you kind of set up chapter three, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we want one response to the other. (laughs) Probably the most common historical response to the other is, oh, well, let's dominate and control. It's a power and status grab, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reading that section, um, that passage. Um, I think in the, in the in this book, I I leaned into the idea of the fear of otherness, mm-hmm. and I think that is a big part of it. Uh, but I also now think um, that uh, a part of the appeal of that old cliche and part of the appeal of dividing humanity by race, class, and gender is to create a kind of hierarchy and uh, the, the possibility of dominance. And I think human beings like to be in that situation where, on the one hand, uh, they have strong leaders to tell them what to do. uh, But on the other hand, they've got people below them they can punch down on. So they don't mind taking orders as long as they they get to uh, dominate somebody else. Um, And so I think that's a part of the that's a big part of this this. uh, the claim of this creed also that those those structures of domination that feel so comfortable to us are a real problem. Mm-hmm. And we need to try to live beyond them. Mm-hmm. I've, and since my whole uh, meltdown and everything that I described to you before mm-hmm. we got on the air, most of my audience know about all that. But um, the, uh, you know, I've revisited the process you know, guys like, you know, mm. Whitehead, Hartshorn and yeah. Bob and all those guys and uh, kind of been very intrigued with, you know, just the, the I, oh, I'm interviewing Tom Ward right after you today. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Say hello for for me. Yeah. Him. I love his uh, his work. Yeah, I'm doing his new book called The Death of Omnipotence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The dominating God who controls everything, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The top-down white patriarchal authority of God, the church, and everything else, and yeah. So that's all been fascinating to me because I obviously I think I think all of us who actually love Jesus in some way or another have an instinct for love as primary, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't always trace that out into all of our concepts of God or our concepts of human relationships. And so therefore we, we so quickly snap into these dominant power control who's in charge, who has, yeah. Yeah. Well, good stuff. So then chapter three, children of God, which you, you know, um, a lot of ways to dissect this, but I, you know, it immediately, uh, I did an exegesis of Genesis one, 27 in my PhD program. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because the, the use of the image of God in the Hebrew Bible is, is quite unique, uh-huh. uh, that it was democratized, uh-huh. uh, with everybody's in the image of God and, yeah. and, and women are in the image of God. Yeah. So that was reserved for the, the King who was the image of God. 
Yeah. It was an elite term for yeah. you know, the yeah. kings of the ancient Near Eastern world. I, we, you can only find one text in Egyptian, old Egyptian text that actually had a democratized view of the image of God. Mm-hmm. Only one out of all the, uh, at, to date. I mean, I'm sure other scholars will find stuff, but, but uh-huh. hardly ever is it uh, democratized like this. And then I, I think also this idea of the children of God being democratized, you know, every, yeah. everybody's a child of God. I, I remember I, I was in uh, Southern Lebanon and met with Sheikh Nabil, who is the, the supreme commander there. You know, he's like considered a terrorist guy, but he's also a, a scholar and a theologian. And uh-huh. it was a small delegation. We met with him. And the first thing he opened with, we're all children of God. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's, and it's just like, ah, good start point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great place to start. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, um, this is a I good decided one. To, I, I had a, a chapter on baptism that I took out because I didn't think that people would be interested in a book on baptism and a long discussion of the origins of baptism. Um, but I, I kept in this part of it um, because um, uh, I think that in, in Protestant Christianity, especially Calvinism, but Lutheranism as well, there's a very strong sense of the, the, the the fallenness of humanity mm-hmm. and um, the reformers get this from a reading of Paul um, and and a reading of Paul that's filtered through uh, Augustine and it emphasizes the fallenness of humanity and and to the point of really um, discounting human effort at all uh, to 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 live a, a good life, to to embrace a life filled with love and and uh, compassion for other people, and all that you know comes secondarily. It comes after you've admitted your utter failure, your total depravity, and thrown yourself on the mercy of God, who who saves you as an act of grace, not because not because God is loves you or likes you or anything else is just almost a, a capricious uh, act of God in, in the Calvinist tradition where where everything's predestined. It has nothing to do with <laughs> you or how God feels about you. It's just yeah. uh, God, it's God's whim. Yeah. And I think people feel like, I think it's much more common in our, in our, in our world for people to think of God as a, as a judge, as a, as a uh, harsh judge and that only by admitting your total depravity and submitting to God completely and totally is there any hope for you. And um, this is a different idea. You are children of God. Um, and that implies a lot of things. It implies, one, you are children of God. God loves you because God, you know everybody loves their children. Uh, secondly, you're children of God. That makes you um, God-like in a sense. You are an, you are the offspring of God, and that's exactly how Jesus teaches it in the Sermon on the Mount. When you act and think like God, you are children of God. Mm-hmm. When you are when you love people who don't love you, you're acting like God, and that makes you a child of God. Mm-hmm. So it has everything to do with your efforts to really become more and more like God. Mm-hmm. In, in American Protestantism, that's anathema. 
You don't become like God. Nobody that nobody becomes like God. God is in a class uh, by God alone, and Jesus is in a class alone. You're not part of that world at all. Yeah. In in the Eastern uh, tradition, Eastern Christian traditions, though, there is a strong uh, idea that that you 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 contemplate the image of God. You contemplate the icon mm-hmm. uh, as a way of drawing ever closer to God, mm-hmm. ever closer to the image of God, cultivating this the, the image of God in yourself. It's a very old Platonic idea, by the way, of you know, becoming more and more like God through religious experiences and mystical experiences even, um, that we just don't appreciate. So I thought it was important to include this this chapter as just to underscore that, that in this creed is embedded the idea that, no, you are uh, something um, valuable and and precious and moral and uh, full of moral agency. And, um, you know, this is, I think, something we need to embrace a little bit more yeah. robustly yeah, in good. American I Christianity. The, I love the comments you were, you know, the, the way you talked about the our you know, Abba father uh, parts of that. And uh, yeah, good, good stuff. Um, so chapter four, I love chapter four. Uh, there is no Jew or Greek. And um, I thoroughly appreciated the history background that you gave for Antioch and Paul's, you know, Paul's obscurity before Antioch, right? And then his encounter with uh, the Jerusalem crowd, you know, he's trying to have table fellowship with, uh, with Jews and Greeks, but you gave the whole background of Greeks, Jews, and Romans that pre- would have preceded that, which was really fascinating to me. And so that whole complexity mm-hmm. of the Greek world, the Roman world, and the Jewish world, and how that came to play and how Paul was radically trying to include table fellowship with the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Um, great, great history there. Thank I, I just appreciated that. And this is really where Paul was passionate. This was probably what drove him. You, you yeah. tend to think that the other two <laughs> statements he was a bit more ambiguous about, but yeah. this one is what yeah. he lived and died for. And you can't really understand Paul without understanding this. Right, right. Back to the new Paul, the way you introduced the new Paul through this chapter. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I loved it. Like if, oh, if nobody read. Oh, by the way, I when I was at Southwestern in the 80s, W.D. Davies lectured at TCU uh-huh. and I, I ended up meeting him. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I loved his Paul and rabbinic Judaism. And of course, one of his students was Sanders. Yeah. yeah. And then got into the new Paul stuff through Sanders and then through Indy Wright, but you know, and other people, but I know it started before then, but uh, I I love the way you introduced the new Paul. And I, I think that shift uh, the Lutheran guy that you mentioned in your footnotes that uh, was really originator of the, yeah, yeah. It was originally the new Paul stuff. Gosh, talk about that shift. What, why is it, why does this creed lead to, a fuller understanding of the new Paul versus the Reformation Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the, um, the, the new Paul, the, the Reformation Paul said, 
Uh, uh, this is, let me just recall some phrases I used to use from lectures. Um, the Reformation, Paul, thought that the um, uh, justification by faith was all about saving sinners. And this was a, a solution to the problem of the universal problem of human sin, uh, justification by faith. And uh, Stendhal taught us that this phrase, justification by faith, is used by Paul always and only in one context, and that is where he's talking about the inclusion of Gentiles in Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. And the question is not how they can be saved from their sins, it's about how can they participate in these communities that Paul is forming without having to observe the Jewish law. Um, and so that's basically the new Paul, that it's about inclusion, the justification by faith is about including Gentiles and creating a more diverse community, uh, not about saving sinners from their sins. Yeah, say yeah. that one more time, just because that's like yeah. that's like the well, yellow bullet point, like, and yeah. people still can't get that, you know? It's hard. Yeah, yeah. well, we think it's about paper. us. We think that Paul is teaching us, mm -hmm. and he's not. Uh, he had no idea that we would be sitting here reading his letters, you know, thousands of years later. He's teaching, he's talking to people, he's writing to people in his own circle. And the problem he was having with people in his own circle was uh, he was trying to include Gentiles in these communities that were predominantly Jewish. And other followers of Jesus, like Peter and James and John, they were saying, "No, we're not. We're not going to do that. This is a this is a, a messianic. Jesus is our Messiah." And the Gentiles will let John, God sort out the Gentiles later. But but Paul said, "No, we have to start doing that now. We have to include Gentiles." And his idea was they can be justified by their faith in their trust in God, just like Abraham was. Remember, he uses that. That example in Romans and in Galatians, he says they can be justified just like Abraham was justified by his faith, his trust in God. That's how Gentiles can, because Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't follow the law. And he was, that was all before the law. So Paul uses that argument to include Gentiles. But through Augustine and Luther, we learned that whole thing different. They had a different question. They didn't, they weren't including, they were Gentiles. They were in. Yeah, uh, Augustine wasn't worried about how to include Gentiles in these predominantly Jewish communities. In in Augustine's day, the church was a Gentile church, and there weren't any Jews. He hated the Jews. He was he was about excluding Jews from the life of Christians. And so, what's the problem that he struggled with? It was his personal sin. Yeah, yeah. And so he took Paul's language about justification by faith and and made it an answer to that question: What do we? What? How can I, miserable sinner though I am, be saved? And his answer was through justification by faith. But and, and I'm not saying that that's a wrong answer, that that's a bad way to read Paul, but it's not Paul. It's not it's not Paul. Yeah, Paul's the, justi out. the justification by faith is, hey, this is how you're included without being circumcised. I mean, right. it, it's it's an inclusive approach it's, to community. It's it's saying that you can have a community. That's based on trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if you're not ethnically uh, uniform mm -hmm. and you don't have all the same cultural traditions to hold you together. Yeah. And you don't have 
even rules and laws to hold you together? Is there any possibility for having a community? Mm-hmm. And Paul's, I think Paul's best insight was that, yes, you can. And, and mm-hmm. it, but you have to trust. Trust is the heart of, of that new kind of community. Yeah. I, you know, I wish he'd, he'd, he'd adhered to that insight more thoroughly over the right. years. Exactly. And, but, you know, we're all flawed and he was flawed as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I found it fascinating, too, that I, I agree. I think that's what Paul I think that's the brilliance of Paul. I mean, if you just had to say what what, it, you know, if you didn't hate on Paul, right, because because yeah. <laughs> of where he didn't go with slaves or women or all the other stuff. Yeah, you know? or just his annoying language. I mean, yeah. he's an annoying person. There's yeah. no doubt about it. So if you just if you don't hate on him and you just try to go, well, what was his brilliance? This yeah. is it. I mean, this yeah, it is. This is Paul so, at his best, you know. So, what I think most Pauline scholars, though, even today, think, uh, and this is true of most of the New Paul people, was Stendhal was like this, and and Sanders certainly was like this too. They think that that um, Paul's insight was essentially a religious insight. That um, he was dealing with a religious problem. And um, this was a, re- a religious solution to it. The religious problem was the law, uh, a part of Jewish doctrine or belief, if you will. And this was his way of solving that religious problem. And I, 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 um, I've always been uncomfortable with that because uh, it, it just didn't seem right to me. And for years, I've been looking at the, the historical situation in Antioch and this really this specific um, historical situation in the late 30s and early 40s in those cities of the Roman East. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I, I think it escaped most scholars' notice that those were very uh, tumultuous times for Jews and Greeks in those cities. And Antioch itself probably saw one of the worst uh, ethnic riots in the history of, of ancient Judaism, right about the time Paul was there, whether he was actually there when when everything happened, or if it was, you know, he came there afterwards in the aftermath, or uh, those are details we'll never know. But but in the late 30s, there was a, 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 a an ethnic riot, if you will, a race riot in in Antioch involving Jews and Greeks. And many Jews were killed. Many Greeks were killed. Uh, the city was destroyed. Uh, and the violence only ended when uh, Rome, the Roman governor, after letting things run their course, probably to his own advantage, uh, intervened and sent everyone back to their corners. Um, and so when Paul comes to Antioch, it's not a nice, wonderful, beautiful city. It's a it's a kind of a wreck. And his own, the Jewish quarter was probably burned out. And um, and many synagogues destroyed. Uh, many Jews have been killed, and there was there was interethnic hatred at a high high level. And so I think that's the background for Paul's insight mm-hmm. that there is no Jew or Greek. I don't think that he he looked at the Jewish law and said, you know, that's the, the Jewish law is a problem. Uh, yeah, we don't get that from Paul. Otherwise, I mean, he's right. perfectly fine with following the Jewish law and all right. things. Uh, the only thing he 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 decides to lower the bar on is on on circumcision, 
a little bit on dietary stuff, but not all that much, really. It's really circumcision. And so um, it's, it's and this is not a, a religious issue. This is a, a human issue. How do you how do you address um, interethnic violence and the the religious dimensions of it, mm-hmm. uh, the cultural dimensions of it? And Paul decides that, mm-hmm. OK, we're going to have to set aside our stuff if we expect them to set aside their stuff yeah, and we can form a new community based on just on trust. We can love the enemy, the other through that trust and through that. Yeah. yeah. Loving, loving your enemy is the most transformative thing you can, you yeah. can attempt to do. I think uh, so. We learned that from, so. Well, we learned that and from it, Howard Thurman. And it's hard. It's not always easy, you know? Um, I mean, I, I, I love it because that's, I, want to live my life that way, but it's, it's challenging at times, you know, it, it is, it is hard, but you know, um, one of my favorite, uh, uh, texts from, in terms of modern of, theology is, is, um, when we're, when we've been wounded by the other, right. When there's, this it, it, is, violence, it is, right? no, it's terribly hard. Yeah. Um, but, but, but Howard Thurman in his book, um, uh, Jesus and the disinherited, uh, points out that now how Howard Thurman for audience, if they don't know Howard Thurman, he was a mid-century, mid-20th century African-American theologian and spiritual writer, taught at Boston University for many years, but was very influential in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and um, his book, The Jesus and the, and the Disinherited, is probably one of the most important mm-hmm. books in, in African-American spirituality from the 20th century, widely read. Um, and um, he's asking, he's addressing himself to African-Americans, uh, his fellow African-Americans who are living under Jim Crow. And he says, these are people with their backs against the wall. And yes, fear is, is, is always there. Um, and it will destroy you. And deception is always there and it will destroy you. Uh, but when you are powerless, when your back is against the wall, one of the things that you can do that will restore agency to your own self, your own self-understanding, is the act of loving your enemy. Mm-hmm. Only you can do that, and nobody's going to dissuade you from doing it. Uh, and if you can find the wherewithal to do that, you will take the first step toward restoring agency and dignity and self-respect to yourself. Mm. And I, I think this is what Paul knows. This is what Jesus knows. Yeah. Uh, this is why Jesus says, love your enemies. He says that to the destitute, to the, to the, to the lowest of the low, to the, the marginalized, the outcast, uh, and he he knows that to from that position, it's hard, but it is the only way to get some self-respect and dignity and agency restored to your own soul. It's man, I just think it's so powerful and central to to Jesus and and I think to Paul. I it was fascinating to me to see how you brought out Marcion's influence and how quickly. The, this creed was forgotten and how quickly the context of this creed yeah. was forgotten. I, I love, I love the work you did 
on the context of this creed and then also showing how quickly it was forgotten and how it ended up turning into an anti-Semitic thing almost for a running history of Christianity. Right. It's just crazy how that flipped on, on the context of, of Paul. Yeah. um, I think, yeah. What, what gets flipped is Paul. I think the the creed itself, um, I would say, and now in rec, you always learn things after you write a book. And, and um, one of the things I've learned is that the creed had more of an afterlife than, than I um, think it did, or that I said it did in this book. And so I missed some things. And, so it does have a little bit more of an afterlife and greed. So hangs around as a kind of minority report for, for, uh, for longer than you might think. Uh, but Paul himself is turned against uh, the Jews. So Paul becomes, as soon as Paul becomes one of us, meaning one of us Gentiles, one of us Christians, yeah. And our question is no longer how do we build diverse communities, uh, Jew and Greek, but but how do we d- differentiate ourselves as yeah. Christians over against Jews? Right. Then all that language that you find in Romans and Galatians from Paul becomes a real weapon for yeah. um, turning on Jews and saying we have a superior religion to to Judaism or something like that. And which becomes part of a big anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic narrative in Western yeah. civilization. And that's, that is a tragedy. Yeah. It's one of the, the biggest tragedies you, uh, your a quote from you, but if Paul's intentions count for anything, you have to say that this long, sad history of Christian anti-Judaism based on Paul is one of the greatest intellectual failures of Western civilization. Yeah. I suppose we should add also moral failures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're not going to have enough time to get to all the stuff I wanted to get to, but uh, you know, it's interesting. This, this, this is the heart of why Paul put this creed in this letter, right? Uh Do you think he, you think, would you date this letter to about 48? Oh yeah, I guess um, Galatians is the most difficult of Paul's letters to date. I know some people kind of go with the earlier dater, dating. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, anyway. I used to teach it early in the sequence when I when I taught Paul regularly. Uh, I'd put it early in the sequence because it because this uh, autobiography of Paul in the first part of Galatians explains so much of what he is about mm-hmm. in his uh, life as part of the Jesus movement. But whether it's early or late, I, I don't have a real yeah. take on it. And then your chapter five on no slave and free, we won't do that. But, but he, I mean, Paul, Paul, it wasn't Paul's passion to take that, to, to tackle all of the history of slavery, you know, it really yeah. was his passion. And then I was, uh, I was hoping to get to the male and female part, but we we're, we're, we're out of time. And, uh, but your chapter six on the no male and female and the, the original androgynous views around Genesis was that, that was so intriguing to me. And then the other thing I thought was intriguing was if you, if you don't give the pastoral letters to, to Paul, uh-huh. You know, uh, yeah. 
then the suppression of women leadership is late to the game in Christianity. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I wish people would pay attention a little bit more to this gender stuff um, in early Christianity, especially because that's become such a part of our, our current cultural uh, debate and dialogue and, and discourse. Um, and Christians are participating in that discourse in a way that I think um, is really shameful. Um, you know, kids who struggle with their gender identity, uh, you know, are mostly just different kids and, and they struggle under all circumstances. And there's no sense of in piling on and, and, and punching down on a, on, a, on a group of people that is really vulnerable. Yeah. And if you read this stuff in early Christianity, you realize that, that many early Christians understood this very well, uh, very well and understood that gender and especially the, the, um, the hyper-masculinization of, of gender hierarchy is, mm-hmm. is a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, Gender fluidity <laughs> is, I don't know if that's a good way to talk about, but I mean, you figure God is represented as both male and female. He creates people in his image, male and female. So uh, I don't know. I, I agree with you on that whole front. We've, we've done a lot of, you know, and I, you know, I grew up, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up on this, but I, you know, growing up in, you know, in the Southern Baptist world, it was like, we didn't talk about LGBTQ stuff. It was just a sin to be a homosexual, you know, and we didn't really delve into it that much. I can't remember all through my, my seminary career. I don't even think it came up one time in the eighties at mm-hmm. my seminary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally, yeah. like, think about that. Yeah. Then yeah. I, I started pastoring in the nineties and we were reaching people outside the church. And I, I literally for 30 years always had LGBTQ people in my church, mm-hmm. but didn't know what to do. I was, yeah. I didn't yeah. understand it. Yeah. I, we tried to get them into inner healing. That was really kind of a Christian reparative therapy thing. And yeah. they, they would, they would come and, you know, they would be conflicted and I, we would, I would love, but I didn't know how to really help, you know what I mean? Cause I just didn't understand it. And over time, over listening to just lots and lots of stories, you know, I finally just had to start rethinking all of those issues. And I, I liked what you brought out about early Christianity. (laughs) That, that to me was a really valuable part of some of your studies outside of the, um, the Bible itself in early, in early Christian histories is that, that little part of, of, uh, yeah, it wasn't always so gender rigid, right? Right. I mean, people our age, have, oh, I think a lot of people our age must have lots of regrets. I certainly do have regrets about the way I've, I've thought about and, and acted towards uh, people who are, uh, different in terms of their gender and or sexuality, different from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And the way I've come to think about it, though, in terms of the Jesus tradition is certainly that Jesus was himself open to all kinds. Uh, he was a marginalized person and his whole 
his whole thing was uh, relating to people who are marginalized by their culture and convincing them, as he had been convinced himself, that they are also children of God. They are beloved of God. Mm. And so to turn this tradition on people and make them feel less than uh, is just a, is just a terrible tragedy. And I know when I was when I was younger, I, I remember never used the Christian tradition to 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 ridicule or vilify gay people, but but I, I had no sympathies for for gay people, and uh, and until I went to college and and start to to, to meet people who are different from myself, and uh, we just have to we just have to persist on this. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah, yeah. There, there's just nothing to be gained from beating up on people who are different except you know a, a false sense of solidarity and and a perverse sense of power mm-hmm. that has no place in christianity yeah i'm i'm 100 percent with you on that i think that's a good way to 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 wrap it up though um because i think at the core of of jesus and and you know like paul at his best <laughs> is this radical inclusion through trust and community and I realizing that there is a oneness in our humanity, but also beautiful diversity. And uh-huh, I think that's uh-huh. kind of what you're bringing out on the, your conclusion, uh-huh. your book is the, is the beauty of unity and diversity. And maybe that's what the Trinity is all about. Maybe that's why I, I often wonder, is that why Christianity stubbornly held to this crazy notion of a Trinity? I don't know. Unity and diversity, maybe. Perhaps so. I don't you know. know. <laughs> one of the uh, crit- critiques of the book, um, it, it, you know, sort of, I think, would have taken the task anytime I talked about inclusion uh, in the sense that you know, that positions me or someone is, is in, a, in a position to include people. Um, and um, that itself is a kind of hierarchical stance and, and privileged stance. And, and so I tried to use the word solidarity enough mm. in the book to, to counter that. Yeah. And I think that's really the what this, this creed is about. It's about solidarity that, yeah. that extends across ethnic class or gender lines. Good. That's good. Yeah. Good deal. Well, Steve, thank you for, so much for taking time to do this. Um, I know I thoroughly enjoyed the book and certainly is one that I would, I would really encourage, uh, all of my pastor friends out here who happen to tune in to uh, check out the forgotten creed. And uh, you will learn, you will learn some great stuff that you can teach whether you embrace the whole thing or not. So, <laughs> and you know, you should mention it's only 150 pages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It took us a long time to talk about it, but it's only yeah. 150 pages. Yeah. And I could have <laughs> talked a lot longer. So anyway. <laughs> But no, thanks so much. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate it. I, uh, love what you're doing. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your dedication to, uh, digging up some of these things and helping us along the way. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning into spirituality adventures. We appreciate it and we will see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special 
bonus content. Thanks so much.